good to be sharing the word with you again today. We're in a series in the Beatitudes. For those who don't know, my name is Ephraim. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm blessed and privileged to be sharing with you. And um, this is, what session? I think our seventh session and the sixth Beatitude that we're looking at today. And we live in a time where um, memes are the order of the day. Um, they, find them, they find their way everywhere. And um, no less than on social media. And people can almost find themselves in a place where they're kind of ordering their lives according to you know, the, the meme of the day, of the, of the, the meme of the moment. And um, for those who are unfamiliar with what a meme is, it's kind of generally a, a short statement or concept or idea expressed um, visually. Sometimes it's a picture with just a short caption, or it could be just words. And um, it conveys a concept that is kind of intended to be really catchy and kind of go viral and get into people's psyche. And, um, you know, as we begin to look at the issue of the heart today, um, there are, there's no shortage of memes on just living life as it relates to our hearts. Um, I just chose this one as a, a simple example of what might be familiar to many of us in terms of the sentiments of just people generally and, and, and how we kind of view our hearts. If you don't follow your heart, you might spend the rest of your life wishing you had. And some of you would sit down and look at that and say, amen. Be like, yeah, it's true, you know. You've got to follow your heart. But in our beatitude today, Jesus challenges us. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And are our hearts something that we can reliably follow? You see, when we look at it in, and consider it in the context of Jesus saying, blessed are the pure in heart, how many of us could really say that we are pure in heart, that we have a pure heart? One of the, the joys of being out preaching with Mikey P and the guys is that um, not only do we get to in, encourage and challenge others with the gospel, but we also likewise are challenged and encouraged. And um, I remember Mikey sharing this on, on occasions as quite a startling um, statement. And Mikey's probably looking at that thinking, I don't know what that's got to do with anything that I've ever said. <laughs> but... I remember Mikey saying one day, imagine if God had you, no, no, imagine if, sorry, I'm going to mash up your thing now, Mikey, to just get Mikey to say himself. Imagine if there was a microchip implanted behind your ear from which all of the thoughts and intentions and desires and considerations of your heart was projected onto a screen for everyone to see. Was that? You get the idea. Now, with artificial intelligence, 
guy in the way it is, Alexa and wh whoever else, Siri and who, I don't think we're maybe too far away from that. Already there. Already there. Oh, please don't tell me that, man. Now, this picture actually is, is kind of trying to convey that sense of a microchip engaging with the brain. But this is actually a real picture from uh, a real um, operation where somebody's eyesight was restored by means of the microchip being implanted in the brain. So this isn't some science fiction. This is science fiction. You know me, you know me and making up words, isn't it? That's all right. That's why you come, really, <laughs> to get the word of the week. What, what word is Pastor E going to make up this week? Science faction. Mm. So, who knows? One day it could maybe happen. You'll be in dialogue with someone, and, you know, they're looking at their phone, and really they're actually con considering the, and evaluating the, the, and weighing up the, all the thoughts and intents that are going on in your heart whilst you're speaking to them as it's being replayed to them through the app. It would be a very unsettling thing, to say the least. And so as we address the issue of being pure in heart, we have to, we have to ask ourselves, pure in heart, who can really see God? Because who is really pure in heart? Well, let's look at the text and unpack that. I'm going to read the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, 1, verse, um, 5, 1 to 12, and then pray. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father God, we just come before you today and um, we are grateful. <clears throat> Lord, you know the hearts of men and yet you have given this promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to be pure in heart, and that, Lord, we would be excited and encouraged by the promise that, Lord, we shall see you. And so speak to us, Lord, I pray. And we ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. So, 
when we speak about heart, we're obviously not merely speaking about the organ pumping in our chest. Um, I saw this really great definition of heart um, by a brother called Joseph Stowell. Um, it's taken from the book Fan of Flame. Heart is used in scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person, italics are mine, the real you. It is the part of our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. I'm a man, I love alliteration, right? Desire, deliberate, and decide. It has been described as the place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. The comprehensive term for a person as a whole, his feelings, desires, passions, thoughts, understanding, and will. And the center of a person, the place to which God turns. And so it's the core of our being, it's, it's our innermost self. And it is the place, the level, the environment at which we interact with God in a primary sense. And so, again, I, I've heard people say that our hearts consist of our mind, will, and emotions, which we kind of see communicated here in terms of desire, deliberate, and decide. Um, there are different views when you get more technical as far as the, the human heart or the inner, inner person and how we, uh, um, what we consist of and how we're structured. Um, here in Hebrews 4 verse 12, we see an insight to the mysterious realm of our inner being. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. So this suggests that those two aspects of our person are divisible by the word of God. There's a distinction that's able to be derived by means of the word of God. Of joints and of marrow, speaking of our body. And then it says, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the mind. Is that what it says? No. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so there is a sense in which our heart consists of our soul and spirit. Um, my conviction is that we are what's known as a trichotomous being or a tripart, a three-part being. We are a spirit. We have a soul, which is almost like two sides of one coin, and we dwell in a body. And so when a person dies, their body is laid to rest, but the spirit and soul goes on in existence. Um, this, along with other verses, I feel support that. Some Christians say we're just a dichotomous, a two-part being, and they lean their emphasis heavily on the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, amongst Jewish thought, the focus was just body and soul. And so soul and spirit was kind of used synonymously. Um, regardless, um, 
I would say that I'm in agreement with the two-part theory because if someone's a three-part being, then that means they're at least a two-part being, right? It's a bit early on a Sunday for all that kind of talk. Anyway, we have an inner being, an inner being where we desire things, where we consider things, and where we decide on things. Is our inner being pure? Are we pure in heart? Now, often we, we speak about people in those terms. You know, that person is such a pure-hearted person. I never know them to say a bad word about anyone. They always really um, have the best of intentions towards everyone. And we kind of speak about people in those terms. We may think about people in those terms. You may have someone who came to mind, even as I was given that description, as being considered a pure-hearted or kind-hearted individual. Maybe even people have even called you that. You're, really, you're a pure heart, you know. My spirit really tech to you. When Jesus confronted the scribes and Pharisees, he made this statement. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You may have heard me say there was a moment, a significant moment when I heard Pastor Brian, our sending pastor, when we was at Calvary Chapel in Westminster and he was teaching through the scriptures and he quoted this verse and he said, you know, when we say things that are out of order and when we say things that are out of turn, when we say wrong things and bad things, let's not say that we didn't mean it. Let's not say that that's not what came from our heart. Because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so therefore, let's just say, I'm sorry, my heart wasn't right when I said that. And recognize that it was not coming from a good place, rather than pretend that it's all good on the inside and what comes out is actually a misrepresentation. And I thought, well, you know what? We're, we're Christians. And so surely that, that's true for the unbeliever, but not for us. And the question is, as a Christian, have you never said something wrong? Have you never said something out of turn? Have you never said something that you regretted and you wish you could take those words back and, even as you've said them? In fact, James puts it like this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire being a function of our hearts, something that takes place within us. And so when we experience temptation, we can neither say it was God who made me do it, nor the devil. Because actually, even when the devil is seeking to tempt someone, he is seeking to play to our own desires. To lure and draw us away according to those things that we really want. 
And so we have to be honest as we're facing temptation and recognize before God that actually I'm finding this tempting because this is something that I really want. Even though I know I ought not to. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. We couldn't speak about the heart without reference to this fundamental truth communicated in Scripture. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I think it was Pastor Rob I first heard um, quote the phrase, the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. In fact, actually, as I mentioned that, and as I turn to Mark 7, there's a series in our archive um, when Pastor Rob done an absolutely outstanding series, or it's like a mini-series within a series, when we were going through the book of Mark. I think that was the first book we taught when we started the church, isn't it, bro? Book of Mark, and he's done a, a series from this called Open Heart Surgery. You can go back in the podcast archive and find that. Open heart surgery. Absolutely tremendous. But listen to these words that Jesus says here. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Now, this isn't saying that, you know, it's a waste of time being a vegan and so on. Um, And in a spiritual sense, this isn't an excuse to be able to just eat McDonald's every day and and fast food and just feel like, you know, your your, your body's going to be fine. Obviously, this is in a spiritual sense. Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. People are like, Jesus, you're so crude, I'm expelled. (laughs) Thus he declared all foods clean. Now let's just um, pause there for a moment for those who are on a crusade. (laughs) There is no spiritual value in vegetarianism, veganism, there is no, can I, louder at the back, for those at the back here, there is no spiritual value in abstaining from meat or any other foods. You go to the chicken shop and it's halal and you're like, hi, I'm a Christian, can I eat this halal chicken? Eat with thanksgiving. Say amen. Amen. Thus he declared. Uh, we could get into that our community group. <laughs> he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I mean, you'd feel like every base is covered there, right? All these evil things come from within and they defile a purpose, a person. And so therefore, we recognize that Jesus in his forensically spiritual x-ray of the human heart reveals the, the reality of where the issues of our lives come from. They come from our hearts. Today is um, known um, and recognized by many as um, Reformation Sunday. And so it's the, the 501st year of the Reformation of when Martin Luther um, went and he nailed his, um, what's known as the 99 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, protesting against the unbiblical and ungodly um, practices and beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. And during the season of the Reformation, um, one of the truths that was focused on and highlighted as a necessity was that of total depravity. And it's a biblical truth that basically says that man is depraved at best, totally. And the phrase total was inserted intentionally because there was a, a, a mindset in that era that said, actually, we recognize that human beings are sinful apart from their minds. And this was... Um, something that gave rise to the, 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 the movement of rationalism and the exaltation of the human mind, which I think that we still see today and even the church is still plagued by today in so many ways. But the notion was that actually if the human mind is the means by which we're able to understand the gospel, then the human mind can't be corrupt or sinful, or fallen. And so that part of humanity must be pure. It must be um, capable of perceiving the gospel and therefore um, experiencing the truth of the gospel. And what they neglected to appreciate was that the human mind is actually fallen just as the rest of the human person is. And it is the spiritual power within the gospel that is regenerative and enlightening even to our corrupt minds and hearts. And so the power is not from within us to understand the gospel or see God. But it is from God who stimulates and empowers us to be able to engage with him. We see here, the Apostle Paul communicating this sense 
that we are fundamentally corrupt from the inside out. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So everyone is under sin, affected by sin, corrupted by sin, condemned by sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so that's pretty exhaustive in its condemnation, recognizing the corruption of the human experience. And this isn't all as in every person only, but it's all of every person. Now, this idea wasn't something that Paul just kind of was inspired in the moment. He was quoting from the Psalms. Psalms 14, verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. And the same sentiment is repeated again by the psalmist in Psalm 53, verses 1 to 3, almost word for word. And so we see that the scripture testifies to what we know to be true in, our, in and of ourselves. However morally good we may view ourselves or anyone else to be, we know that there is no one who is actually pure in heart. Especially when purity is not defined by our standard of pure, but actually by God's. You see, when God says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's saying those who are pure according to his standard. And so at this, we might lament and think to ourselves, okay, so who is really pure in heart? Who is really going to see God? Because I hold my hands up. I know that I'm not that person. <clears throat> Jesus addressed this. And this is one of the true wonders and joys of salvation. That even though we are corrupt in our hearts, God has given us a cast iron promise in Christ Jesus that actually we can be pure in heart. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. I remember um, when I first became a Christian um, and I was sharing that with people, they would say, what kind of Christian are you? Are you one of those born-agains? And so this phrase became some kind of noun by which our, our, our identity as Christians were defined. Are you one of those born-agains? Because people kind of recognized that there was a difference, especially in the culture and in the community where everyone called themselves Christian. The, the Bible opened by the bedside with the Psalms. <laughs> Psalms 23. Got the, the, the plaque up on the wall, God bless this house. And... Everyone considered themselves a Christian, but few people were living like it. And so the way in which people kind of distinguish are you one of the born-agains, because the idea was the born-agains were the real Christians. The ones who had had, had, had had this experience that Jesus was speaking of in, to the extent that it actually was evidenced in their lives. And this is the intention that is being communicated here. That there's supposed to be a change. A change not just in our behavior. It's, Christianity isn't an exercise in behavior modification. The church isn't an exercise in social engineering. If we just get a group of people together and give some good ideas, and then we all agree to those ideas and then try and put them into practice, then we'll have a better society. No, that, make, that would make it no different to any other ideology, communism, capitalism, Rotary Club, um, what was that, the Mother's Union, there's, there's one with the, whatever. Women's Institute, that's the one I'm thinking of. I mean, you can have any kind of group and any kind of ideology, it will not result in fundamental transformation. The results will always be short-lived. Actually, <laughs> Shailen reminded us yesterday of this when he spoke on Genesis 11. Listen, when I tell you, fire from the heavens, the recordings captured nicely. We'll make sure they get put out. And he spoke about the way in which the people in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, they said, let's make a tower unto God. And they came together and they were unified. They were unified as humanity with one language, one voice, and one intention. And yet they were unified in defiance to God. Any kind of human unity, any kind of human ideology, I mean, it's Black History Month, right? And we've got to fight the power, right? And, and, and so do we think that if the, the, the black community takes ascendance and becomes the dominant, the majority culture, that the world will be paradise? Really? Is that what, we're, is, that what is being, you know, is that the, the aspiration? You see, we can reflect on our journey as a people and we can reflect on our experience and the oppression and the suffering that we've experienced 
at the hands of others. And it's necessary to do that, not just one month of the year. We're able to reflect on our achievements and our contributions to life and the world as a people, just as much as anyone else. But let us not ever make the mistake of thinking that being united in blackness will result in utopia. No. Jesus said you must be born again. You need to become a new person. And he went on to say, and don't marvel, don't be like wowed, astounded that I said you must be born again. You must be born again. Become a new person. And as Jesus was dialoguing with Nicodemus, the head teacher of Israel, and Nicodemus didn't understand this. So what? Does, can a, a person go back into their mother's womb and come out again as a new person? Jesus says to him, so what? Do you, the teacher of Israel, not understand what I'm talking about? And there was, a, there was a very good reason why Jesus asked him that. Because this was a promise from old. We see it communicated here in, in Ezekiel. Chapter 11, verse 19, first of all. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Communicating the sense of removing that hard heart, which is primarily hard toward God, and will be given a new heart, a tender heart. Repeated again by Ezekiel in 36:26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a tender heart. A new heart, a pure heart. This was the promise of God. And praise be to his holy name. We experience that as we come into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He who was killed and came back to life. He whose life was taken and yet was renewed. And through that means, Jesus going through that experience on our behalf, we can have absolute confidence, confident assurance that when we put faith in Jesus, he gives us a new heart. Amen. Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. No. But according to his own mercy, as we spoke of last week, by the washing of regeneration. And this term regeneration is a term that is, being, that is used in Scripture to communicate the same thing we just read. Jesus said it, born again. Synonymous term, equivalent term, 
regeneration, speaking of the same thing. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so, God will purify the hearts of those who come to him, recognizing, and as we said, these beatitudes are telescopic in their nature. You start off with poor in spirit. I'm poor, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing, no claim before God, no merit. And I mourn sin. And as I mourn sin, I, I look to God for that comfort. And yet, having mourned sin, I, I come before the Lord and I recognize that actually it is only in Him that I can pursue righteousness. He is righteousness. And I hunger and I thirst for His righteousness as one who is very aware of my limitations in meekness. And so you kind of, you see this progression to the point where the pure heart that we need is a logical next step. Now there's a sense in which as we speak about a pure heart, we recognize that there is a need for a, a singular focus of heart. A singular focus of heart. So, James puts it like this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In the Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wrote about an individual who was Mr. Two-Faced. And he was an individual who had his face towards the kingdom, but also his face toward the world. In modern terms, we might say that he was an individual who sat on the fence with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. And James is saying here, make up your mind. Do you believe the Lord? And are you going to come to him in faith and trust him or no? There's no in-between. In Hebrews 11.5, it says that those who come to God must believe that he is. It's not, oh, I believe God today, but tomorrow, mm, nah, there's no God, you know. This whole Christianity thing is a joke. It doesn't work. And so there needs to be a singular focus 
that is an expression of a pure heart. Because it is in that that we are able to receive from God. The double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. And the double-minded person ought not to suppose that they'll get anything from the Lord. You see, if the notion of a pure heart on our part is simply in order that we might experience life improvement. So I'm not really convinced about surrendering to the Lord and really giving myself to live according to his will and purpose. I've got my plans and aspirations for my life. God's got a wonderful plan for my life, but so have I. And you know what? I'm happy to kind of plug into and tap into whatever he's got that's going to help me achieve what I want. That's an expression of double-mindedness. God isn't there to endorse our agenda. In the book of Joshua, Joshua meets the captain of the Lord's host and he doesn't know who it is. And he says, are you you for God or for his enemies? And the response is implicitly, neither. The captain of the Lord's host doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say, I'm for the people of God or for the enemies. He says, I am the captain of the Lord's host. And the sentiment is, listen, I'm not here to be aligned to one side or another. I'm here for every side to align to me. It's subtle, but it's important. People like to claim that, you know, the Lord walks with me. Mm, Really? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you walking in his ways? Or do you have this impression that you can just go your way in life and do what you want in life and the Lord's just going to be there endorsing and rubber stamping? And so as we consider a, a purity of heart, that purity is also reflected in a singular focus. Now look at the promises of God to to cleanse our hearts, even where our focus is not singular. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it doesn't say your whole spirit, soul, and body be well preserved by you. But that it be kept. Kept by who? Well, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is faithful to finish the work that he started in your life. And so there is a clear sense that God keeps us And God cleanses. Jude 23, God presents us before the throne of grace, faultless. And yet, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So God is at work in us, but we must work it out. 
James 4 verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, that's on the basis that God has already drawn near to us. You see, there's a, a truth in Scripture that God always makes the first move. And so our response then is to draw near to God. God having made the first move. Romans 5, whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, there was a brother, right? And what's his name again? He was like the, the Matt Redman of Christian music today. He was like the Tim Hughes. He was like, he was like the Hillsong in his generation. His name was um, Graham Kendrick. Aye. Graham Kendrick. Listen. Shine Jesus. When I tell you, this brother wrote anthems. Listen. Some classics. And then there was this one song, and I'm sure it was a Graham Kendrick song. You did not wait for me. To draw near to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. Listen, you know them. You don't know about them songs there. God did not wait for us to draw near to him. He made the first move. But having made the first move, we have to respond. People often misconstrue grace as being. Uh, a complete negation or nullification of our responsibility as humans. God is sovereign. God, God's grace. God, God does it all. But we have a responsibility also. And so there is a healthy tension that is held. God's sovereignty and God's grace, God's initiative, whilst we respond and so we see here, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God's drawn near to us. What's the response? The response is, you draw near to God. And he will draw nearer. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so there's a necessity for us to purify our hearts. How do we do this? I think Jesus helps us in the next chapter on from the Beatitudes. Also in the Sermon of the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. He says this statement which on the surface can be viewed quite cryptically. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And so there have been those who have taken this to think, thought that this is related to the phrase that we have in our culture, the eyes are the window of the soul. And so, you know, when you look into someone's eyes and you feel like they're staring into your souls, is this what Jesus means here? Well, No. It might have some relationship to that, but not in that sense. So the eye is being viewed as a window. Bearing in mind, you're talking about a culture with no electricity. Um, if there was no lamp, they would be reliant on natural light. 
And so if you're inside the room, or in this case, the body is, is being um, portrayed as a metaphor like a room, and the eyes are like the window into the room. And you know what it's like? It's lovely in the summer, on a uh, bright summer's morning, to be able to open the blinds, pull the curtains, and the light floods into the room. And even with all of our technology, people are still trying to recreate natural light. And, and the, a synthetic form of natural light that has all of the qualities and properties of natural light because it's just, there's something so rich and unique about natural light. And so the eye being like a window in the room of the body will allow light in as we focus on light. But when it's dark outside and it's dark inside, there's no light coming in through the window to help us. And so the idea is, what are you focusing your eyes on? Is it light or is it darkness? If your eye is bad, poorly focused, your whole body will be full of darkness. You see, there is a sense in which it's not what we eat that goes into us and defiles us. Not in a literal, physical sense. And yet the adage is still true, you are what you eat. We had a brother we used to do prison ministry with, Emmanuel King. He still does it, I'm sure, actually. And when we used to go to the, um, do chapel in the, in, the, in the prisons, he had this phrase that he loved to say, garbage in, garbage out. And it's that sense of, if you take in nonsense, foolishness, fodder, that's all that you're going to consist of. And so how do we see our hearts having been transformed at its core find a path of expression that is consistent with that? Our hearts have been transformed at its core if our faith is in Christ. We've been regenerated. We've been born again. And yet, what we focus on will determine how effectively the reality of that transformation is expressed. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul put it like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, it's not just what we focus our eyes on and what we think on and what we meditate on and what we allow to enter into our minds, but it's also what we give ourselves to. What we give ourselves to. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so as we give ourselves to meditate on the Word of God, to consider and reflect on and allow it to pour into our souls through our seeing and hearing, 
And as we seek to apply that, then purity of heart will be cultivated and developed in ways that will be actually translated into reality. Fundamentally, Jesus said it like this. You shall love the Lord your God with some of your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with a part of your heart. With the majority of your heart. No. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's with all of our inner being. And no doubt that is the challenge for us. As we seek purity of heart, as we pursue the purity of heart that comes from God and honors God in its expression, the others might look at us and say, there's a, there's a sincerity there. There's a, there's a genuineness of intention. There's an integrity whereby what they say matches with what they do. And what they do matches with what they intend. And there's a straightforwardness and an honesty. In that, truly, we will experience the purity of heart that enables us to see God. And I close with this thought. And I invite the team to come back up. Look at what Jesus said. This really struck me as we was preparing for this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot what? See. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is not just see in, the, in an eternal sense. But, you know, pure-hearted people see God in everything. They see God everywhere in life. You, you, you might feel as a Christian, you know what, it just, it, I just can't seem to see the Lord at work in my life. Maybe you need to cry out to the Lord and ask him to purify the focus of your heart. So often we're so consumed and so distracted with everything else. We can't, we can't see the wood for the trees as they say. And maybe there's a sense in which our purity of heart needs to be addressed in order to help us actually see and recognize God for who he is. We shall see God in eternity. But what a blessing we have to be able to see him now at work in our lives. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Let's stand as I pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the promise that you've given. That you would place a new spirit in us. 
and that you would take out the heart of stone and give us a tender heart of flesh. Lord, in our, in our sin, we were hard-hearted. We were opposed to you with a passion. Even when we didn't, it didn't seem that way to us. We were pursuing what our endeavors. We were pursuing what we wanted over what you want. That in itself was treason, rebellion. And yet in your grace, in your loving kindness, you gave your son to die, to give up his life, to have the contents of his heart poured out. Even as the spear pierced his side and the contents of the heart poured out in a physical sense. Lord, we recognize that the heart of Christ was poured out in his death for us. And yet after three days, it was reunited to his glorified body. And in this is our hope and assurance that we can experience the newness of heart even now in this body in which we live. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be your name. Praise be to your holy name. Renew our hearts, Lord, we ask. And help us as we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.